what I think people didn't understand is things like the one-year contracts. If we got nominated for a National Magazine Award, then you're going to get renewed. It wasn't just this ego of wanting an award. The way you find out is the nominees come out on Twitter one at a time. So I was sitting there watching it live. I didn't get nominated. I had this terrible feeling of, wow, if you get that experience with that person and the story you write isn't good enough to be nominated for a National Magazine Award, then I screwed up. I was given this wonderful opportunity and blew it. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. On this podcast, we've always interviewed creators in Asia. I made an exception for this episode because I wanted to speak to Chris Jones. Chris is a journalist and screenwriter who is best known for his work while at Esquire, where two of his stories won the National Magazine Award, the highest accolade for magazine writing in the U.S. I'm a longtime reader of Chris's work and also enjoy his hilarious Twitter feed. So when his book publicist reached out, out of the blue, and really a first for Foolish Careers, and asked if I wanted to check out the book and interview Chris, I couldn't say no. The book is called The Eye Test, where Chris makes the case for the value of human creativity in the world of algorithms. I had no idea how writing worked as a job. I know that sounds really dumb, but I'm not a very smart person. I enjoyed writing, but just the idea of someone paying you for words, it didn't seem real to me. I was doing a master's in urban planning at the University of Toronto, and I lived in a little college called Massey College. And the headmaster of Massey College was a former journalist named John Fraser. And he would see me writing, and he knew I wasn't doing it for school. And so he's like, what are you writing? And so I showed him three of the things I had written. He was like, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You should be doing this. And he got me a job at the National Post, which at the time was a brand new newspaper in Toronto. And so it was entirely John Fraser's intervention that got me writing. I was a couple of months from graduating with an urban planning degree. So then what happened when they gave you a desk and <laughs> stuff? <laughs> so the National Post was like 300 people getting hired all at once. It was a big paper. And the editor of the paper, Ken White, hired about 15 really sort of young journalists. We were called Ken's kids, dismissively by everybody else. And while the paper was being built, we were all put at a news bureau in Toronto for the chain that the National Post was part of. And we were just thrown into work. And I was terrible at it because I, I'd had zero experience. But we had a summer of practice and then in October, when the National Post finally started, I got pulled up into the sports department. Had no idea what I was doing. I just learned on the job. I started writing very small stories and then had this great editor who then let me write a little more and then a little more. It was a very old school apprenticeship style of learning how to write. And then you had this now legendary story of how you talked yourself into a job at Esquire. I was in New York covering baseball for the National Post, loved Esquire, thought I would like magazine writing because I wanted to spend more time on a story. I'm quite a perfectionist, and I just wanted to work more on a piece of writing than I was getting to do at the newspaper. 
Esquire was made beautiful magazines. And at the time, the office was in Midtown, New York, in this little three-story building. And I just walked in. I just walked in and thought that the editor-in-chief, who was a guy named David Granger, would want to meet with me. I don't know why I thought that. It's insane. But I just wanted to talk to him about how you got found. I wanted to get on his radar. And I talked to the security guard, and he was like, do you have an appointment? I was like, no. And then he said, well, no, then. And I was like, are you sure? And he was like, yeah, I'm pretty sure, buddy. (laughs) And I was leaving, and a janitor stopped me. And I've never been able to find the janitor again. In my head, he's like this guardian angel. He says, do you want a job at Esquire? Again, because I'm a moron, I said not as a custodian. And he's like, no, as a writer. And I was like, yes, please. I don't know how this is working. And he's like, talk to this guy, Andy. Talk to this other editor. And he explained who Andy was. And I went back to the security guard and I said, can I talk to Andy Ward? And the security guard said, you can call him on the phone. So I called him from the lobby phone and he answered. And I was like, hey, I'm Chris. I'm a baseball writer from Toronto. I'd love to meet you. He's like, when are you going to be in New York? I was like, I'm in your lobby. And two hours later, I was up meeting with him, making him read my stuff. I, I brought a dozen donuts for the janitor. I brought a dozen donuts for Andy because in Canada, it's like, if you want to become the guy that everyone likes at the meeting, you bring donuts. Who doesn't like the guy who brought donuts? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I'm Filipino. We're the same. Yes. If someone brings a dozen donuts, I'm like, oh, I immediately like you. You're a generous spirit. And I met with Andy and again, like an idiot, I made him read my stuff in front of me. Like I sat at the desk as he sat at the desk. And what I didn't want was false hope. Mm -hmm. You see those people on American Idol who've been told their whole life that they can sing and they can't. I didn't want that. So I said, is there a chance one day I could work here? I wasn't asking for a job. I was like, can I, was this possible? He was like, yeah, it's possible. And then six months later, he emailed me to say they had a position. And this is the best part of the story for me. Andy said, 10 people were going to write a story. The best story got the job. Pressure, hardcore pressure. I wrote a story, I got the job. Never found out who any of the other 10 people were. Years later, Andy tells me, oh, I just made that up. It was just you. How did he know that was how he got to you? I don't know. It did. I love editors. They're total maniacs. He was a fantastic editor, but the the fact that he constructed this fake competition to drive me, it absolutely worked. I would have done a good job anyway, I hope. But at the time, I had left the paper. I was living in a Jeep. Like, I really needed the job. Okay. So I had enough pressure, but Andy decided, just in case, to give me a little more. So I worked really hard on that first story and, and got the gig. And 14 years of great writing and hilarity ensue. (laughs) But what's the lesson there? Hope that you find a saint of a janitor who stops you. Hope that some crazy gatekeeper says yes and invites you up to the office. Hope that the editor calls you back in six months. Hope that a position opens up. Hope that even before that, someone kind who knows you goes, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. And hooks you up with a job you're, I really think this is being humble Canadian a bit like it's you not. had a good portfolio now I mean, I and you had something in you that made you walk in there idiocy <laughs> I would never do that now do you think people can replicate that now so people have talked about the Esquire thing and it's a bit sad now because Esquire is now in this great big glass art Hearst the parent company built this massive skyscraper in New York 
Esquire was on like the 21st floor, that you would never get in. It was only because Esquire was in this little building that you could walk right into. So I still think you get jobs in creative fields by meeting the right people. I still think that's a huge part of it. And I think if you ask most successful creative people, if there was a point in their life when someone just took a weird chance on you, they would almost all have a story about someone who just said, I don't know why, but I'm going to give you a shot. And that's, I think that's true of most of us. I used to bristle in writing. A lot of writers will talk about someone's luck and it would bother me because it diminishes the work you did. Oh, he just got lucky, mm. which makes you just seem like you shouldn't have gotten the job. Now that I'm older, I recognize how lucky I got. At the time, I didn't want to tell myself that, but now I go, yeah, I was really lucky. I, I feel like I earned it retroactively, like I did good work, but I definitely got lucky. And I think most creative people at some point get very lucky. Were you aware that you had to earn it retroactively? Yeah. The thing about working at a place like Esquire, you're surrounded by really talented people. One of the things I didn't appreciate enough how old was I when I started? I started Esquire, I was probably 28. Esquire had this very established core of writers, great writers, Tom Junod and Charlie Pierce and Tom Chiarella, mm -hmm. Mike Sager, like all these big time writers, Scott Rabb. And I loved reading them, but then there's a weird intimidation that happens when your stories show up next to their stories. You realize you have to really pick up your game because you can be embarrassed by the comparison. And you only find out when it's in print. They go, oh, wow, that, my story is the crappy one. Uh, I, re <laughs> I, I replaced Charlie Pierce, who was like one of my favorite writers. And the first issue of Esquire I appeared in, I was writing a sports column. That's how I started. And I turned to the sports column, excited to read Charlie Pierce. And it was me. And I was disappointed. I remember being like, oh, I've read this story 10,000 times. That's dumb. I miss Charlie Pierce. Like, I, I wanted to to read him. And I could only imagine how many readers of Esquire picked up Esquire hoping to get their Charlie Pierce column. And it was me instead. And they must've been like, who's this guy? The other thing about that life, a creative life is it's very tenuous. Like at Esquire, we, we were all on one year contracts. So huh? every year you had to earn your job back. I'd, Wait, I thought you were on salary. I was on salary, but year to year. So there's some pressure every year to get renewed. I got a two-year contract toward the end, and I was like, oh, my God, two years. Oh, yeah, 100% uh, growth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was like, wow, there's some job security. But for at least the first 10 years, it was year to year. Do you remember the first story where you felt, okay, I'm bringing it a bit more now. I'm earning this a bit. Yes, and I felt that way because my editor told me. <laughs> like, I, I, I wrote the sports column for a while, which was... Uh, 2,500 words, which for my newspaper days would have been like the longest thing I ever wrote for Esquire was a pretty short thing. And then I got to write my first not sports feature, which was 6,000 words. It was a space story about three astronauts who were on the International Space Station when Columbia, the space shuttle exploded. It's also the same one that won you a National Magazine Award. Yeah. No? Yes. So wait. So that's how I knew I got there. That was it? That was it. So my first feature won a National Magazine Award in the magazine business. That's like 
the equivalent of a Pulitzer. And then the next day I went into the office and David Granger made me a writer at large. Uh, Esquire's the best title you could have as a writer was writer at large. That meant you were like a staff writer who could write about anything. It was like being knighted. That was like 24 hours of just you know, floating. Floating. It was exactly that. That's when I went, okay, I think I'm here now. I was still nervous every year about getting renewed. And I think it helped me in a weird way. I never felt totally comfortable. I never had that sort of, I don't know what the word is, sense of like arrival. Everyone else was much more established always. I was never not the new guy. I'd been there 10 years and people were still calling me the new guy because no one came after me. I was the last one in the door, basically. Your listeners can't see me. You can see me. Like five years ago, I was the youngest guy at Esquire. Yeah, no. For my listeners, Chris looks like Gandalf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's exactly right. Once I got assigned Taylor Swift, and I was like, I shouldn't write about Taylor Swift, but I was the young guy. So I got, oh, Chris is the one who can do the, he can communicate with the children. <laughs> Justin Timberlake, give that one to Jones. Well, three years later, you got your second National yeah. Magazine Award. I, I cried when I read that story. That story was hard. A tough story. So this was uh, Things That Carried Him, which was mm -hmm. a piece about how an American soldier's body gets back from Iraq. They all get buried at home. I, I really like what I would call a process story, like how things happen. And I just followed a single soldier's body all the way from Iraq to home. Esquire ran 17,000 words on that. Like that's, they gave me eight months to go work on that. That's the kind of thing that would happen there that made it a very special place to work. I still felt like there was breath on my back, but that was another time when I was like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I think a lot of creative people, I don't know, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I definitely needed affirmation mm. pretty regularly <laughs> to be like, oh, you're doing okay. 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 Good. You, you can get inside your own head a bit. A lot, actually. A, a lot. And I think writers in particular, because <laughs> it's quite a lonely type of job, isn't it? You spend a lot of time staring out windows. And it's sometimes you're thinking about your story or sometimes you're thinking about an idea, but sometimes you're thinking about your career and you're thinking about, can I do this? Is the phone going to ring? Yeah, that is definitely a part of the gig. Every now and then, I definitely needed someone to tell me I was doing okay. I think one of the hard things about putting stuff out, for a long time, it's just yours. You can do whatever you want with it. It's complete control. And then you show it to your editor and then you lose a little bit of control. But if you have a great editor, which I did, the story gets better. So now it's two of you working on this story. And then a few more people get involved. A fact checker gets involved. Designers get involved. You still have mostly control. Once it comes out into the world, you have zero control. So it goes from this very personal thing to a very public thing immediately. And you try to guess how something will be received, but you never know. I was shocked. Sometimes, sometimes I got a ton of attention for something that I wrote in half an hour. And sometimes I worked really hard in a story and it disappeared. No one read it. People bring their own experience. They bring their own lens to things. And you really can't ever tell. But it, what's hard is if you really love something and it's your baby, this personal thing that you've made and that you really are proud of, and then it comes out and either no one reads it or people hate it. And I think that's maybe... The hardest thing about being a creative person is learning to deal with an audience that doesn't like what you're doing. I, I thought it was really interesting that you got flack 
for saying that you were expecting a third National Magazine Award for your Roger Ebert profile. Oh, no, I don't know no. why people were annoyed. And I didn't say I was expecting a third award. Oh. I said I was expect. I thought I was going to get nominated. Ah, okay. And that was a fun, that's something we can talk about. It's, so that story came out 2011, maybe 2012. And that was a profile of Roger Ebert, who's this American film critic. And he was battling cancer of the jaw. He'd had surgery and he couldn't eat, drink, or talk, but was still this incredible writer. And he built this beautiful online community. It's like he found a new way to live and spending time with them was incredible. So that story did well. I heard a lot about how I was going to get nominated for another National Magazine Award. What I think people didn't understand is things like the one-year contracts. If we got nominated for a National Magazine Award, then you're going to get renewed probably. Mm. You know what I mean? It was like a it was like a career. It's a guarantee. It was a, it was a guarantee. And it was, I got a bonus if I got nominated. It wasn't just like this ego of wanting an award. And then the way you find out is the nominees kind of come out on Twitter. One at a time. So I was sitting there watching it live. I didn't get nominated. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I felt like I'd let Roger down. I had this terrible feeling of, wow, if you get that experience with that person and the story you write isn't good enough to be nominated for a National Magazine Award, then I screwed up. That's how I felt at that moment. I was like, I didn't do a good enough job. I guess I was given this wonderful opportunity and blew it. That's how I felt. I had a blog at the time, and I didn't feel like I wrote it like I deserve, I should be getting a National Magazine Award. I was just disappointed that I didn't. Mm. And yeah, people hated that thing. Because I'd already won two. I guess it came off as greedy, which I understand now. At the time, I was like, what the hell? And at the time, I was much more competitive. And I can't imagine Chris Jones being competitive, to be honest. Are you being sarcastic? Oh, no, my God. I'm being, oh. <laughs> you feel so mellow. Yeah. Oh, oh, I've had some changes. I was very competitive just in everything, but particularly about work. I was really competitive. Journalism. Yeah. It's competitive. It just is. I knew Gary Smith had the record for National Magazine Awards. How many did he have? He had four. I had two. I thought I might get a third. I was like, well, I've got a shot at being the most decorated. And now, of course, I'm very grateful for the two. I'm not going to win another one. That's fine. At the time, though, I was deeply stung, wounded. Because I think the overarching feeling was I had failed. You've transitioned in the last few years from journalism to screenwriting. And I wanted to talk about that yep. later. But I did want to get to the book, The Eye Test. I read it over Christmas. And I enjoyed it immensely. I finished it and screenshotted a lot of stuff. So, oh, okay. I am honored. Yeah. I am honored by your <laughs> liking of my book. There's a few things that really stood out to me. There's the magic trick shadows oh, yeah. by Penn and Teller. And you have the thing about the detective who got the serial killer to confess. Mm. That was nuts. Eric Berman, who was Houston's most reliable weatherman. Great. During Great Hurricane guy. Harvey. So smart. Yeah, and then this other rabbit hole I went down is the best carpenter in New York. Did you read that story, the New Yorker story? Yeah, yeah. So good, so good. And it's just, that, that, it's just a story about a carpenter. It is, but it's also a story about that, that writer just opened up this entire world. Fantastic. I will Fantastic. never see New York the same way again. No, I was totally absorbed by that story. Burkhard Belger. Burkhard Belger is the writer, for your listeners. Mm -hmm. Great. Mark Ellison is the carpenter. I can't mm -hmm. remember the name of the story. Oh, it's called The Art of Building the Impossible. 
The art of building. The and apartment. the photo was this crazy arch oh. in the hallway. Made of wood. Yeah, looking through another hallway with a perfect mirror arch. That's fantastic. And you think, what story. is that? Yeah. Great yeah. story. Great yeah. story. The cover was basically a tribute to your son, Charlie. It is. That's correct. Can you share a bit about Charlie and how he reads? Because to it, me, that was the best thing. Oh, it's my favorite part of the book. Charlie is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to keep it together. I'm going to talk slowly now because I have to keep it together emotionally. I have a hard time talking about Charlie, but we're going to do this. We're going to get through this together. You're a very kind person. Where everything's going to be fine. Charlie is my oldest son. He's 15. He's about to turn 16, which is crazy to me. Charlie has autism. Autism is a very tricky thing in a lot of ways, but in the sense that you know, two neurotypical people are alike, no two people with autism are alike. Charlie's autism is, I would say he's in the middle. He can talk. He's very loving. He hugs. So we're very lucky for a lot of those things. But he has some profound disabilities. He doesn't understand numbers. Charlie will never understand that 1985 happened before 1994. Time doesn't work for him. And he has this amazing memory, but it doesn't have the motor skills to write. So things like that. It's like a mix. And one of the things that always confused me about Charlie was he read. Always read. He could read when he was two. And everywhere he goes, he carries a giant bag of books. I'm trying to actually have him carry fewer books because we'll go to a restaurant and he will bring a bag of literally 30 books. And I'm like, Charlie, you can sneak one book. We're going for a meal. The idea, Charlie not having something to read is his nightmare. If if he ran out of things to read, he would lose his mind. So this bag of books goes everywhere he goes. And I couldn't understand how he read when he couldn't spell or write. If you asked Charlie to spell cat, he wouldn't be able to, I don't think. Maybe cat, but certainly in bigger words, no. For me, reading demands that you can write. That's what literacy is, that you can spell. And when I learned to read, I learned to read with phonics. It's pronunciation. You sound out the word and syllables. And Charlie never did that. You never heard Charlie sound out a word. But he would ask what words were. And so we were constantly saying, that is car, that is dolphin. And I've actually asked fewer and fewer times. He did ask me the other day. He, he had a word, oh, constitution. Constitution came up the other day. And what we realized through his therapy is that he just memorized words. He memorized the shapes of words, the way you remember faces. And so the shape of the word is somehow stamped. Because he does have this incredible memory. And the way I, I write about it in the book is it's like how if I said, I asked you to picture a friend of yours, you could, but you probably couldn't draw a perfect portrait. Charlie recognizes that word as a friend, but can't replicate outside of the reading experience. And that just taught me... But there's different ways to do everything. If there's different ways to read, which seems like a very one way of doing things kind of thing, there's different ways to do everything. And they're just as valid. Charlie is just as good at reading as someone who learned through phonics. It's just different. And I spent a lot of my life being a very black and white thinker about the right way to do things. And being Charlie's dad has taught me that's not true, that the world is much more complicated than that. And those different perspectives and different techniques are really useful. Like they, 
open doors that would otherwise be closed. And the four-leaf clover is another one of Charlie's weird little... Charlie's brother, my other son, Sam, is just... He's extremely popular. He's built like a Greek god. He's a very good soccer player. Everything is easy for Sam. He's good in school. Sam decides he's going to do something. He just... He starts doing it, and everything's hard for Charlie. And sometimes we want to balance them out. If we want to balance them out, we send them, go out there and find us some four-leaf clovers. And Charlie will come back with handfuls, and Sam won't be able to find any. And there's just something about the way Charlie looks at the world. There's something in his brain or in his literal eyesight where four-leaf clovers just really stand out to him they just they and he can just go pick them pick them and sam the way he looks at the world he can't see them and so for me the four-leaf clover on the cover of the eye test was just this lovely little nod to charlie and the value of perspective the value of different perspectives and and i think one of the things that happens with creative people is sometimes they don't spend enough time thinking about what their gifts are and who they're supposed to be, what they're mm. supposed to do. I think sometimes you do the thing that you want to do, but within that, like writing, for instance, there are different kinds of writing. You find the one that really fits you, and you're going to have more success than if you try to fight and do this one that's not quite your thing. It's, it requires a lot of self-reflection and self-honesty. But if there was a job finding four-leaf clovers, Charlie would be one of the greats at it. How did you pick the people to go in the book? A lot of them were people I knew and people I'd met already. And a lot of them were people that I'd kept in touch with. I've met a lot of interesting people over my career. And if someone stuck with me, they were really interesting. The bar is pretty high for someone to make an impression on me. That sounds terrible, but it's just from meeting so many amazing people. So sometimes I'd be working on a section now and remember someone. I'd be like, oh, this reminds me of... I didn't, I don't outline anything. And so the book is very conversational and literally I'll be writing a section. And I think some people will think it like has tangents. So I'll be writing about something and then all of a sudden Charlie will show up or astronauts will show up or the price is right will show up or, and it's just because as I was writing it, I would go, oh, that reminds me of that. And then other parts I knew I had, I needed to find somebody to illustrate the point I was trying to make. So there are sections medicine for instance i talked to people about narrative medicine which is a sort of new to the west style of medicine and i had to do it by zoom unfortunately normally mm. i would go to the hospital and watch them work i couldn't do it a graphic designer i really admire i talked to him would have loved to have gone to a studio couldn't do it so i did the best i could given the circumstances but how people show up is literally they popped into my head and then i would start writing or i would see a blank and i would go now who fits that principle i can't believe you don't outline that's admirable and annoying at the same time it's a constant fight among my friends my writer friends uh, okay. because i have friends and also writers i really admire who are fastidious outliners so if i see someone like robert caro who i love or gay talise was this famous esquire writer mm -hmm. they do really detailed outlines and so if you like the work they do, I think it's pretty natural to think, oh, that's how I'm supposed to do it. So I have tried to outline and I just, I am terrible at it. I just, I can't picture a story until it starts showing up on the page. And then I can move things around. 
I never could have written in the age of typewriters because I, I write different sections and I move them around and I, it's like finger painting the way I do it. And trust me when I say, I've thought many times that I'm doing it wrong. I have friends who are big outliners. I have one friend, Seth Wickersham, who calls me a witch because he's, he doesn't understand. No, with hate. No, (laughs) with loving hate. No, because for him, outlining is like a lot of work and he has to do it. And he feels like I'm skipping that step of hard labor, but I'm not, I'm, I'm just doing it on the page. It takes me a lot longer to actually write a story than him because once he's outlined, he's good to go. I'm sitting there cutting and pasting and making a mess. Can you talk a bit about the affinity gap concept? Because you really call bullshit on this tech entrepreneur as a way of illustrating that idea. Yeah, I wrote a story years ago about a guy, his name was Ryan Kavanaugh. He decided that he could use data to very accurately predict what movies are going to be hits. And not necessarily giant hits, but he was like, I will never make a movie that loses money. And And of course, in Hollywood, the reason all we got are comic book movies now is because they're guaranteed to make money. That's the only sure thing in Hollywood. You can make mm. the same thing that happens to us, just to small scale creators happens to Hollywood studios where they think that people are going to go watch a movie and they don't, or maybe this little movie will do something and it becomes a huge hit. And it's a problem in Hollywood because you just lost a hundred million dollars if you get it wrong. So he claimed that he knew what people would want, but he ended up losing $2 billion. He was completely wrong. He did worse with data than a Hollywood studio would do just with gut or like trying to think what people would like. It did not work. There was a big gap between what he thought people wanted and what people wanted. And it's, and that, that gap is expensive in create in creative work. It's something like Hollywood. It's very expensive for you or me. That gap is if you get that wrong, it's like heart time. It's work that you, that is gone or hope that is gone. In Hollywood, it's $100 million that's gone. And so that gap becomes a very expensive proposition. But I also use the affinity gap to talk about people who genuinely love doing something versus someone who's doing it just because they think they should or they're doing it for a job. And that difference will always come through in the final product. It always shows up. That that gap between the person who loves the thing and the person who's just doing it. You can take people to like identical skills and one just puts more into it because they love it and you can see it all the time and it can make up for a lot it can't make up for everything again going back to american idol just because you love singing doesn't mean you can sing like sometimes the dream can't come true but if you are working at something that you're good at and you are driven because you just adore it i believe that will help overcome a lot of deficits in terms of talent like raw talent you can make up that gap. yeah and that's the other great concept right which is this idea of embodied analysis and you talk about pen and teller and the shadows trick i think you've said before that this is your favorite quote sometimes magic is somebody just spending more time on something than anyone else might reasonably expect my favorite quote that i've ever gotten i can remember where i was as teller the magician We were sitting in his kitchen. I remember him saying it. And I remember it was like I had found the fountain of youth or something. I remember so 
clearly everything about that moment. I just knew when he said it, which is my own version of embodied analysis is I knew when he said it, that I, it was something special because I'd spent years doing this thing and, and it's so true. So Malcolm Gladwell took a lot of crap for the 10,000 hours principle was that if mm. you took anyone and made them do something for 10,000 hours, they could be pretty great at it. It turns out that's not actually true. It's true sometimes, but there's preconditions. Like you still have, you have to have some gift for this thing. And then the 10,000 hours would make a difference. But what Tyler was trying to say was what sometimes we perceive to be raw talent or what we perceive to be magic. Or we always use the expression overnight success. Like someone got struck by lightning. It's actually someone has worked really hard at something for a really long time. More than you would ever imagine. Because you can't imagine someone working that hard on something. And then you go, oh, that's magic. Meanwhile, the person who's doing it is, no, I spent six years perfecting this thing. And that, then yeah. it becomes magic. So, so that's what that quote is about. It's just people who are dedicated and passion, what that does. It makes you able to do unbelievable things that baffle people. As a professional writer, what's your own embodied analysis? You're asking me to be egotistical? Uh-huh. I think I am... I understand people pretty well. I I can pretty quickly figure out where someone's coming from and things like can I trust them or motivations. One of the great gifts of being a journalist is you get to ask the questions and then you sit back and listen. And if you're a good listener, you learn a lot about people and how the world works. I think I'm a good listener, and I think I've come to understand people, what makes people tick. I'm still bad at a lot of things, but people, I understand people. And I, I, I understand when someone means something. Do you know what I mean? Like a great story has an idea, but it also has a theme. It's about this, but really it's about this. Like Teller, that's a story about magic, but really it's about love. And, and like I can see what Teller means, and I think that's just from spending a lot of time with people. And now it's pretty quick. I can meet a stranger in a bar and I can pretty quickly figure out what's going on about them. I'm a pretty good poker player. Oh, really? I'm not good at the math, but I'm pretty good at reading people. My one skill at poker is figuring out what people have. Oh, good, good note. Good note. And that's, that happens in sports. In sports, you want to get to this, the zone, we call it, where you're not consciously thinking about anything. You're just... You're in the game. You're just playing. And that's when you're at peak performance. There's a great David Foxer Wallace story where he talks to a tennis player he loves. This is a female tennis player named Tracy Austin. And he's so disappointed when he talks to her because she can't explain anything. He wants to learn her secrets. And she's like, I don't know. I just go hit the ball. And he's crushed. He's just like, but... But you do it so beautifully, she's, she doesn't think about it, so she can't explain it. A, a very favorite question of sports writers is to ask athletes, what were you thinking when you did the... And they're like, I wasn't thinking anything. I was running as fast as I can with a ball at my feet, trying to get it in the net. That's what I was trying to do. It's like a, it's <laughs> like a funny... It's not conscious thought. It's embodied analysis where it's just... Yeah, it's, it's beyond muscle memory. It's, it's an intellectual version of muscle memory. It's beautiful to watch. Yeah, it, it, it is actually magic. It, it seems like magic. 
because that person hit 50 million golf balls. Oh, you're so lucky you got a hole in one. No, not lucky, actually. Just uh, really good. I've been very curious about this transition you had to make from magazine writing and feature writing to now screenwriting and book writing. I think you've tweeted about this a bit where you know, it wasn't something you intended. No. And I think you said something like, like, I'm not old enough to live out my career in the format I want. Yeah. How do I explain this? If I'm being very honest with myself, I am supposed to be a magazine writer. That is the right fit for me. It's the right length of story. It's the right um, level of reporting. It uses the things I'm good at. What we're talking about where you have to do self-analysis and be like, that's what I'm supposed I'm supposed to do that. It's become really hard to be a full-time magazine writer. Esquire doesn't have staff writers anymore. It's all freelancer. And being a freelancer means it's a totally valid way of working, but it makes it very hard to do a story like the things that carried them. You can never spend eight months on a story. Mm. It just doesn't make financial sense. So the kind of magazine writing I like to do is very hard to do now. But I, I was 42 then. I had to keep working. I still needed to work for 20 years. And I couldn't do the thing I'm supposed to do. So then I had to try to find a version of that thing, something where I could apply the same skill set. I couldn't go be something radically different. I had to be a writer of some kind. And at the time, 2016, screenwriting, TV and streaming and movies, it was actually a lucrative and weirdly, it was easier to write a friggin' TV show than it was to write a magazine story, which is just insane. Bizarre. Totally bizarre. But that's the world that and so I was very lucky that one of the last stories I wrote for Esquire got option for screen and I got a job on the show, which was a show called Away that was on Netflix. Mm. Hillary Swank was our star. At that point, I was probably 44, was how I entered screenwriting. And it was just a big change. It's a big change. It's like a radically different business that I like in some ways and don't like in other ways. And so this is an adjustment. What do you like about it? Well, the money is great. The main thing I like about it is it's a lot less lonely than magazine writing. Because TV writing in particular, you write as a group of people. And you literally, this is pre-pandemic, you literally sit in a room together with bulletin boards and index cards and you just... You make a TV show. It's just oh, yeah, the physical work of plotting out a story. Oh, so great. It looks like a serial killer lives in that room because it's just, it's index <laughs> cards and like you use, every character has a different color of cards. If a character has disappeared for too long, you can just look at the wall and it's just scene, 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 scene. And then you're moving them around and you're moving episodes. And eventually what you end up with is a season of television mapped out with index cards. And then you go and write an episode that's yours. I'm, I'm making air quotes. And then other people will work on those shows. You'll work on other people's shows. It's very collaborative. There was delicious snacks. I liked everyone. We worked in the room. I enjoyed how not lonely it was. I'd just been divorced. And it was like medicine, going to this hopeful place to go to work. What I don't like about it is that a lot of writing happens that never becomes anything. And for someone who grew up in magazines, if we got assigned a story, we wrote the story and it showed up in a magazine. There was never work that happened for no reason. Whereas I've worked steadily as a screenwriter now for five years. I've had that one show come out 
nothing else I've written has come out. I'm getting paid, but it doesn't show. I have friends who are screenwriters who have worked their whole careers and made good livings and never had a single thing come out. It's just a, and that as a business model for me, it's gross. I guess I don't like that about it. It seems very wasteful. Or even as a creative career. Yeah. But never like actually. Like what credit, what do you get the byline on? Nothing. Literally, I know people who've worked for 20 years as a screenwriter and never had anything come out, but make a good living. So you do a ton of work for nothing that no one buys. Then you finally get a, something that lands. Then you write that thing. And then it still has to get made. Like it, I wrote a, my first movie script that I got paid to write. I pitched it in the room, sold it. The studio paid me to write it. And then they decided they didn't want to make it. Okay. So then that, that script is now just sits here in my, we were talking about the very personal thing becomes very public. That mm -hmm. has stayed very personal. Six people have read that script. I still hope it might become a movie somehow, but there's every chance it doesn't. When you were in the room, what was it like suddenly being the least experienced guy? It was fun. It was like at the end of Esquire, so 14 years, I'd, I was finally confident. It took a long time, but I was, I was like, I could do this. Being in the room was the opposite of that because I had no experience. Everyone had at least some experience and some people were very experienced and I was the oldest person in the room. So it's weird being the oldest person who's the new guy. I also look a lot older than I am. So I seemed even more old, but it was super fun. It was fun to be the apprentice again. So now you're a screenwriter. That's what you say your profession is. Like you're no longer <laughs> a magazine writer. Yeah, I wouldn't call myself a magazine writer anymore just because I don't get to do it very often. But I still, I'm a very jack-of-all-trades writer at this point. Like, I am doing this golf story that I'm really enjoying doing. I do some sports writing for CBC, which is the Canadian national broadcaster, public broadcaster. So I still like to do a bit of deadline writing. And the Canadian men's soccer team is doing well, so I like doing that. I'm screenwriting. I have a script that I just submitted for a film, so... I'm not any kind of thing. I, I would just call myself a writer, I think. And okay. if people pay me to do it, and if I feel like it's something I want to do, then yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't put a label on it anymore. I was very proud to be a magazine writer. I very clearly said I was a magazine writer. I, I can't say I am that anymore. Just a writer. And the goal is to get a script written that actually gets me. That'd be the dream at this point. Yeah, film. TV's fun, but movies are my sort of first love and the idea of sitting in a theater and watching people watch something you wrote even though no one gives a crap about yeah. screenwriters like no one cares about writing at all but the oh people no. do name who, what's yeah. your favorite movie amelie who wrote that um dead poet society who wrote that oh no you don't um, you have no idea and it's okay i, I don't <laughs> know either i love those movies too i okay i love quentin tarantino stuff but he's, he's a, a bit, bit different because he also direct most of the time the screenwriter gets no credit it's just part of the deal Aaron Sorkin. But I think all the people who I know wrote something also, also directed. directed it. Writer-director is a whole other thing. But the writer who just sits mm. in the room and writes and then gives it, the director then takes it. But the idea of sitting there knowing I did it would be enough for me. I would like that. I don't want to sound like a tired old man, but that's the last big career accomplishment I would like as a movie in a theater. That's a pretty decent goal. It might never happen. Possible at this point. I've got 15 years to make it happen. I'll do my best. Okay. There's this thing about passion versus talent. Mm -hmm. Is there one or the other that you think is more has been more important to you? 
in your career? I would say it's passion. Hang on, let me think this through. I would say it's passion. Because? Because I think a lot of writers have as much talent as I have. I don't think of myself as a particularly talented writer of sentences. Like I, I'm a pretty meat and potatoes. Like I, when I write, it's, it's pretty basic writing. Like I don't, I, I remember being stressed when I was at Esquire that I didn't have a voice. Like the other guys, you could read them and you would know instantly. That was Tom Junon. I could read Charlie Pierce. You don't think you have a voice as a writer? Not really. Because I've, because it's so plain. I think I write very plainly. Um, I don't know. You write in a very flowy way. That's the goal. I try to write in a way that just it doesn't stop you. And that was journalism training, right? That was the whole goal in journalism is to get people from one paragraph to the next. Like, but I actually think when I read what you write, it's almost like scenes. That's true. So you can imagine a scene. Yeah, that's also what I was taught. Like that, I was taught about the value of scenes. Most magazine stories open with a scene. But the passion, I always loved what I was doing. And I always wanted to find out more. I'm always wondering why things are the way they are or how things happen. I'm always curious about that. I love people. I love meeting people. I would always spend more time with people if I could. I never got bored and wanted to go home. I would always be like, can we do this again tomorrow? And then I love writing. It actually makes me quite upset when writers talk about hating writing. Because then I'm like, excuse the language, but I'm like, then get the fuck out. No one's making you do this. And if you hate it, there's someone who loves it who can't do it because you're doing it. If you hate it, get out. And of course, if you call them on it, they're like, no, I don't. I'm like, you don't actually hate it. I was just whinging. Just whinging and you're just subscribing <laughs> to this idea that writers are supposed to be upset. And it's a gift of a job. Oh, my God. That, my favorite thing is the last 10%. Like when you've got the story and you're just doing a little bit of polish. I'll put some music on. I'll have a cup of coffee beside me. I'll just be reading, changing like the odd word, changing the odd piece of punctuation, maybe a little delete here and there, a little cut. Oh, that's heaven for me. That's what I'm going to do this afternoon. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.